I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Radford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we started the Imperium Trilogy by Claire Legrand. We read the first book in the series, which is called Furyborn. I feel like we've been in this world longer than one book. Like until I heard you say that, I kind of forgot that we haven't talked about this at all yet. (laughs) To be fair, the book is 500 pages long. (laughs) And I think the next one is even longer. I think you're right. So... Yeah, three books, but uh, a lot of time spent with with these ladies. Yeah. What should we talk about first? Should we talk about world building, characters? Well, why don't we start with the prologue? Because that sets a lot of the stage, and then we can decide where to go from there. But the prologue is told from the point of view of, how old is Simon at this point? Eight? Five? Like, pretty little. A little kid, yeah. Yeah. Unclear, but... And he's watching his father help deliver this future princess, the queen's daughter. Mm-hmm. And we don't know anything that's going on at this point. But nope. him and his father are planning to escape because of what they are. They're half angel, half human. Mm-hmm. They have angel blood and human blood. And then this queen, he like hates her because she murdered her husband. Well, he hates her too because she was prophesied to be the sun queen. There's two queens that were prophesied, the the sun queen and the blood queen, and one has the power to save the empire and one has the power to destroy it. And everyone thought that she was the sun queen and it turned out it was the other way around. So he like resents <laughs> her for that. But then this Corian shows up and they're all freaking out and we're like, what is going on? Who's Corian? <laughs> yeah. And his dad ends up dying and I think partially protecting his son and somehow Corian's influence. And Riel, the blood queen now, hands the new baby to Simon and is like, you have to protect her. And he's, I guess, has this ability to like travel through space and time. Yep. But he's never done it by himself before. <laughs> yep. And then she self-destructs. Yeah, just that scene alone, I was like, what are we, what is happening right now? (laughs) I know, I actually went back and reread the prologue after I finished this book, just to like, reorient myself, because I had the same questions, I was like, who's Corian, who's Simon, who's Riel, who is this baby, why did that man throw himself out the window, like... It was it was confusing, but it also like made me want to keep reading. So it was like a good kind of confusing. Oh yeah, I mean it definitely like pulled me in. It wasn't like let's set the stage and like introduce some characters. It was like you're right in the middle of the action. Totally, <laughs> and it was also fun because then the book starts two years earlier with Riel, yeah. and so when you're like learning about her and you're just like, oh, I know how it ends, and it's not pretty. Like having that kind of yeah. like dramatic tension was like actually really interesting and I don't know many other books that like give away the ending before the beginning but I I liked it yeah it made her a more interesting character to know that two years down the road becomes this horrible destructive force in the world Mm -hmm. and whatnot and I guess because we see a thousand or two thousand years later I forget how far in the future is our second storyline now so our second storyline is 1020 years later yes yeah, so that was all interesting, too, because we sort of had this, like, intro period, but then we go back in time and super far forward in time. We haven't really come back to the center point yet, officially at all, even at the end of the book. No, we haven't gotten there. And I like how the chapters alternate between the two queens. So it's Riel and then 1,020 years later, Eliana. I, I really did like the alternating chapters. I'm kind of always a fan of alternating chapters because I I enjoy getting to a certain point and wanting to know what happens and like having that pain of waiting a little bit before you get back into the (laughs) action like I don't know maybe I'm a masochist but I like actually enjoy that so I I really liked the like organization of the book and I sometimes get worried if I'm like not into one storyline especially when I I read a lot of historical fiction and sometimes I'm like way into one 
time period more than another. So I was a little bit worried about this huge time jump and like identifying with one storyline significantly more than the other. And well, I wouldn't say I like them necessarily equally. I was intrigued by both and they were different enough. It was a nice shift and I liked that it was the same world, but so different in some ways that mm-hmm. it almost felt like two different worlds. Well, now I have to ask, who did you like better, Riel or Eliana? <sighs> I guess it kind of depended on the chapter, but I think I like Riel more. Same Z's. But I wonder how much of that is because I also know how it ends and I'm like intrigued to see that play out differently. Like, I don't know. I think I could like Eliana more as it goes on because I still feel like I know her less. Well, I feel like what's great is that both of the women have like very strong motivations and very strong goals. I think as a whole, Eliana is a little bit harder to love. (laughs) She is like a little bit more complex and, you know, a little bit more of a shadowy character. Yeah, but she's also, I love the sibling relationships and stories, you know, and her and Remy's relationship is one of my favorite relationships in the whole Mm, book. Good point. I don't know. I'm curious to see now that she's sort of revealed this idea or like has learned more about her past I'm curious to see where she goes from here because I think she could grow in a really nice way or she could really start to annoy me I'm not sure which yet well I think what's kind of interesting is Riel like I think she is more likable at the beginning but it's interesting to know that she is actually the blood queen like she's the one who destroys the world whereas Eliana she struck me as like a little bit harder to like she has you know some morally ambiguous uh flaws and she ends up being the sun queen which is the one to save the empire so I I like that there's that distinction between them and that kind of difference yeah morally gray people are good (laughs) for stories and I feel like they both are a little bit because we're seeing I mean to your point Eliana seems kind of like she's a lot of negative traits right now but we know or we think she's supposed to save the world according to the prophecy so you think we're gonna love her at the end and the opposite for real kind of at this point Mm -hmm. so yeah like Eliana says that she feels like there's a monster living inside of her and she (laughs) so I just I kind of like that it's a little bit opposite of what you think yeah agreed Okay, do we want to talk about... Let's talk about Rial first. Okay. So, in this world, there's still magic. They have defeated the angels previously, but there's, like, these elemental magicians, I guess, that align with one of seven powers, and she's the first person ever to have not only more than one, but, like, all of them. Yep. So, because of the prophecy, her dad and teacher have been like forcing her to hide this for literally her entire life or since she was five years old when they realized it and she accidentally burned her house down and killed her mother. Um, So that's a lot of baggage to deal with. And the way they've been trying to hide it, like she's so... They've been like drugging her and keeping her prisoner to like keep her powers hidden. And remember that scene where they were talking about how her trainer like held her under water and she had to not Aww. fight him yeah yeah uh, it just sounds terrible yeah uh the methods are not great but somehow she's bffs with like the crown prince and the crown prince's cousin and like the three of them are inseparable and i'm still a little bit confused by what her dad's role is that it's just the three of them growing up yeah that was unclear too um he's like the army head or something maybe some kind of like general i think lieutenant Something like that. So yeah, right away, complicated daughter-father relationship. Yep. Also, I think the author did a really nice job up front explaining the magic system and explaining, like, why Riel was special and why she was dangerous. Yep. And I... I don't know what it is. I'm such a sucker for elemental magic systems. Like, I love them so much. And I really love Chosen One stories. And I really like prophecies. So, like... This book just, like, ticked all the boxes for me. Um, I love how everyone needs to have, like, a casting in order to do their magic. And it has to be something that they've actually created themselves in order to, like, Mm -hmm. unleash their magic. But Riel doesn't need a casting. And, yeah, she can access, like, all of the elements. I also kind of liked how there were seven or maybe are there always oh, seven but yeah. I felt like like shadow is not necessary you have like the primary four and then I, I felt like there was even more to this than some simple magic systems exactly yeah so they have sun spinners who work with light shadow casters who work with shadows and can like create illusions firebrands wind singers water workers earth shakers and metal masters but yeah you're right there are like some some extra cool ones in there yep 
And we get like more and more lore as we go through the book too. And I know at the end they kind of there's a table, mm-hmm. at least in my book, that showed some of it. But like they're each associated with one of the seven saints that locked up the angels, and they're e- like there's a lot to it. There's like a city or a temple dedicated to each one, and it was cool to see that. And then also mm-hmm. see a thousand years later where this is like not believed and magic isn't really active totally. in the world anymore, but they still have these stories from a thousand years ago. And yeah, it felt like different worlds. And the world building was fantastic, too, I think. I loved um, how we have these quotes at the beginning of every chapter that's, like, it reminds me of, like, the Young Elites. Remember how, like, um, Mm -hmm. Marie Lu does that, where there's, like, an account, almost, of, like, a history of the world, and we get... We get, like, so many people's perspectives. We get, like, Ludovin's father's perspective and Tal, her teacher's perspective. And, like, it's just such a great way to build a world and introduce information without, like, trying to work it painstakingly into your manuscript. Love that. Yep. I also really love the relationships that Riel has. I really like Ludovin, so she's, like, her best BFF. But there's some tension there because Ludovin is engaged to Prince Audric, who Riel has liked for ages and who also likes her in return. Yeah. And like is even an understatement. They're like obsessed with each other. Oh my goodness. <laughs> some of these sex scenes were making me blush. I think this was like the most explicit book we've read in terms of like love making. <laughs> Definitely up there. Especially from like a romantic sense. I feel like um, Nevernight also had oh, some yeah. explicit sex scenes but they weren't as I don't know romantic's not even the right word but like they felt different than these they did but I thought they were like really well done yeah they didn't like offend me but yeah I definitely would have been blushing if I was in public I think (laughs) I was surprised because we don't get a lot of sex in YA and it was nice to like actually have that part for once and have it be like really well done and they both had like romantic relationships, but neither story was 100% revolving around the romantic relationship, which I also appreciated because they're, you know, in their late teens. So yeah, boys matter to them. But like, they're also under so much pressure and like doing all this. Other- I like that it wasn't like heavy on the romantic relationship. Yeah. And I, I like that it was definitely a big aspect, but it wasn't the only thing going on. I also love that there wasn't a love triangle because very quickly yeah. Ludovin is like, I have no interest in this prince. Like, have at it, girl. <laughs> and I just, I appreciated that. Yeah, it's, it's complicated from a like, how do we get the logistics right? But not from an emotional standpoint at all. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then I also liked Riel's relationship with Tao. And I thought... Mm-hmm. His character was really interesting to me because I feel like in YA, we either get the young love interest or we get the older mentor who was, like, old. And Tao is, like, so fascinating to me because he's not a a love interest. He's slightly too old to be a love interest. He's, like, in his early 30s. But there is this kind of, like, Mm -hmm. crushiness that Riel has on him where she's, like... It's, like, the believable relationship of, like crushing on a teacher or something like that where like you know nothing's gonna happen nothing will happen it would be inappropriate if it did but it was really believable and like felt really real to me and I was like that's not a relationship that you often get in YA either like you either have this young love interest or this older sexless mentor we don't really get the in-between so I appreciated that and you're right because it never got icky like it did feel just like something yeah crush on a teacher yeah although I had more complicated feelings about him and their relationship when I found out like how far he had pushed some of these things and I know he did it but I mean like their relationship is complicated too totally like I think he does love her not in a romantic way but in a like older sibling or a uncle way or something but like he cares about her he had to in some ways just like torture her and that's so rough yeah so the book opens with Riel and the prince making this stupid mistake. She accidentally reveals her powers to everyone. And now the king is not pleased and like rightfully afraid because there's this prophecy that like two queens are going to emerge and one's going to destroy the empire. And it's it's like crazy new magic. Like the fact that she can wield things without a casting yeah. and access multiple powers. And I think also it's scarier for them because... It wasn't like there's someone in the world who can do this. It's like there's someone who's been in my house every day for the last 18 years or whatever. (laughs) So now she has to do these trials to prove that she's the sun queen. Because if you can choose, that made me laugh. I was like, what? 
Um, but it's really like it's it's to prove that she can control her powers and to prove that she is loyal to the Empire and will not destroy them, which was like kind of a cool setup. And I like because I always like the political aspect too, where there was sort of this degree at some point where they're like, oh, let's do these in public, let's get the people to like love and support mm-hmm. you too. And I'm curious to see that play out even mm-hmm. further, especially knowing that she destroys the world. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, which was your favorite trial? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Maybe the mate, the metal one. Oh, where she has to rescue the kids. The stakes just jumped so high, and it was kind of interesting to think about how this like contraption was shifting and moving and stuff. It reminded me of like running a gauntlet or like American Ninja Warrior or something, where like the gears are turning and yeah. the cages are <laughs> shrinking. That was what was your favorite? Scary. I, I I liked the water one. I liked when, like, the jellyfish attack her and she, like, separates the water. I was just thinking that one would be so boring to watch. Boring? Because everything's happening underwater. I mean, like, to be a spectator. Oh, yeah. for the spectators. That's a good point. I did like that she had to, like, assemble the trident because it totally reminds me of, like, Legends of the Hidden Temple, like, assembling the silver monkey shrine or whatever. <laughs> that's, like, the vision that came to mind. So I think that's why I liked that one. Um... The metal one was cool, too. I also really liked the fire one. And that one was, like, a little terrifying because Tao, again, his idea was to, like, oh, let's recreate the house where your mom burned in this fire. And I'm going to put myself in the middle of it. And here's your chance to save me as you couldn't save your mother. Like, that is messed up. I know. I don't think that's, like, good psychology stuff. Like, if you're facing your fears or you're facing past trauma, I don't think that's how you do it. No. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not the proper way. <laughs> yeah. And, she, and the thing was that she didn't even have to do that trial. She insisted on it because she was like, no, fire's my weakness. Like, I have to prove myself. Ugh. And I'm glad for from that perspective, not the way the fire trial actually worked out, but I'm glad that she... F- faced fire for herself and I also from a like see visually perspective think that scene where she turned the fire into feathers would have been really cool oh speaking of feathers I don't know why but I love that she has a flying horse friend (laughs) (laughs) yeah why wouldn't you love that that's awesome I just want him to talk and be like a snarky horse like some of the other horses we've seen yeah Um, but also speaking of flying which not that this is a flying thing, but angels have wings, so I'm just transitioning awkwardly to Corian. So throughout these trials, she starts <laughs> hearing like this voice in her head, and we also know from the prologue mm-hmm. scene that Corian's like the one everyone's afraid of and like caused people to die, and everyone's running from and stuff. So we know he's kind of a bad guy, but initially he's definitely helpful in supporting her. And there isn't a true love triangle, but there was some weird things going on. She's attracted to him. She has this like unseen attraction that she can't really control where she's just like very lured by him and very drawn to him yeah and that that one if anything feels a little bit creepy to me because they've never really interacted it sort of feels like he is because he can like touch her or make her feel things he's controlling her yeah yeah I think he was controlling her and you saw it escalate right like he started out being like so sweet and so supportive and then like you saw his jealousy when she slept with Audric. And even, like, he starts getting jealous of, like, her friendship with Ludovin. And he starts trying to control her and starts trying to separate her from her friends and be like, no, choose me instead, which yep. is, like, very manipulative. They're all going to turn on you. They they don't understand you. But at the same time, he's also, like, helped her and supported her at certain points. But then, right after the fire trial, he demonstrates that he is not a good guy for the first official definite time. Uh, So he has, like, this mind control ability. And we do find out he's one of these angels that got locked up previously by the saints. And he's one of the ones who's escaped. Mm -hmm. And he can, like, possess people's bodies or, like, control them temporarily. So he's, like, having people turn on their friends and brothers and their own people. And there's, like, this terrifying scene where everyone's doesn't know what's going on and havoc is everywhere and he's basically telling her come find me which is also weird i was like why i feel like there's other ways to get to her than this but Mm -hmm. okay and then she does find him and doesn't go with him she fights back and in the process kills the king burns him her dad ludovin and ludovin's dad doesn't she kill like four people yeah Yeah. And she burns Corian and, like, sends him away injured for the time being. Also, 
Ludovin's dad tried to kill her previously. We forgot about that scene, so that was complicated. But their friendship endures until we find out that Ludovin's been keeping a big secret. And and I am so glad we got something about Ludovin because at a certain point I was like, this girl is too good. Like, there's no way you wouldn't be angry at your friend at this point. Even though, I know granted she didn't love Audric, she was okay with that, you're still going to be married to the dude and like you're essentially given there's a way to do it properly yeah (laughs) or communicate or like yeah and then when you know her father tries to kill her best friend and she fights back and yes her father absolutely deserves to be punished but strangling him using her powers in front of everyone was not the right way to go well and she just and Ludovin just seemed so okay with it like so just like fine with everything like not even a little bit angry which didn't seem super believable to me so then we when we discovered that she's actually that Ludovin actually died at age of 16 and uh, an angel has been impersonating her that totally made more sense to me that was so interesting and at first I was like how can it how did they not realize but then we also find out this angel had been like observing slash following the three of them for like 10 years before that or something and she escaped with Corian yep yeah so Corian is ultimately trying to like get revenge for the angels and like rule the world and doesn't seem like a good or caring to human type of person. Whereas Ludovin's angel possessor is like, this was a thousand years ago. It wasn't you guys. Like, I don't have any ill will to you. This is wrong to do. Mm-hmm. And she was sent to protect Rio. And now, yeah, has developed like true affection for Audric and Rio. This book is giving me serious Lonnie Taylor vibes, I have to say. Just with, like, the (laughs) angels and, like, the opposing sides. And I'm loving it so much. I don't read enough books about angels, and I actually really like them. Like, I will take angels over fairies any day. (laughs) I also, I love in both books this idea that angels... Like, the the allusions to angels as we know them in our world and our, like, Christian tradition and stuff like that but it's so twisted too where like they're the enemy or they're you know like christian tradition for the most part is like angels are great wonderful next to god protectors all this stuff right and like that is not the case in this book (laughs) these angels are bad news (laughs) most of them at least yeah i love that Oh, okay, so that's Riel's side of the story. Shall we fast forward a thousand and twenty years to Eliana? Sure. So she's living in the same world, but uh, magic has basically gone away since Riel's time, and Eliana at least doesn't believe in it. Remy does believe all the old stories, her brother. She's, in order to survive, become like an assassin hmm. or a for hire rebel chaser. <laughs> Is that what you call it? <laughs> this was like, a, I had to like really focus to understand this. I don't know why it was hard for me. It shouldn't have been. But yes, yeah, so basically the empire invaded her country and the Red Crown is the rebel group that is fighting against the empire. But Eliana is working for the empire to kill as many Red Crown members as she can. So she's essentially working for the enemy. And it took me like a minute to get that. Um, And she has this like, you know, inner turmoil where she's, she feels guilty that she is working for the enemy, especially since her friend and lover, Harkan, his like entire family was killed when the empire invaded. But she also needs to provide for her mother and her brother. And, you know, her father has been missing these past three years and her mother is disabled and she does have this like pressure to provide for her family so she like does what she needs to do to survive and it's definitely not a loyalty thing it definitely is to your point like a survival thing it's like this is the best path to protect the few people i actually care about and she's not unaffected by it like she does feel she pretends like she is unaffected yeah which is like a total coping mechanism well and it's interesting because she like learned this from her mother and her mother's the one who even gave her that coping mechanism right like it'll consume you if you recognize it or whatever so i i am actually kind of curious to get more of her mother's backstory yeah mother we find out but yeah and then this was interesting too because so she works for the empire but she is being kind of recruited by the invictus who are elite assassins that work for the empire and razavel is the leader who wants her to join and not only is that like the coolest name ever razavel they're creepy he's super creepy (laughs) yep and they all are because they all have these she's like noticed 
different things throughout the book, like the black eyes and the like jerky movement. And we ultimately get more and more exposure to this where various people close to the emperor are never, they can never like eat their fill or like find sexual pleasure. To, they can't be satisfied. They're, like they're always hungry and starving and looking for more. They can't be hurt. They can't be satisfied. They can't die. Now, is that true of the Invictus or just of the Atatrox? Because there are the Atatrox who are like the Empire's soldiers oh. and they have like the black eyes and they're like robots. And then there's the Invictus, and I was, like, getting them a little bit confused. But I feel like just everyone across the board is, like, invincible, it seems. Yeah, I think the closer you are to the Emperor, the more likely you are to... And what I think they are now, right, because of what we've learned, is angels resurrected in human bodies. Yep, and the Emperor is Corian. We finally learned that. Because yep. they kept talking about the Emperor, the Emperor, and I was like, who is this Emperor? I know, I was too. I was so in- intrigued. But then we also learned that there are... Women and children, girl children, are being kidnapped. And there's, yep. like, no rhyme or reason to it. And this is a mystery. And um, Eliana's mother is actually of one of the women who is kidnapped. And... That's when she cares. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's when she starts caring. And Razavel basically asks her for help with a job. He wants her to find the wolf. And he is the right hand of the prophet, who I think the prophet is the leader of the Red Crown. I think you're right, but we don't know a ton about him yet. Right. Yeah, I think he's the the prophet is the leader of the Red Crown, who ends up being Simon. The wolf ends up being Simon, but who's the prophet? Oh, oh I don't know. <laughs> I have oh, no idea. Because okay. I, I have so many questions about the prophet, and I thought you were going to tell, I thought I missed that. Okay. No, yeah, we no. don't know who the prophet is yet, but yes, the wolf is Simon, and Eliana is Riel's daughter. <laughs> we ultimately find out as well. Which, I totally suspected that as soon as she mentioned she had that pendant. Yep. Because I oh, was yeah. like, there's no way, like, your mom just happened to find this pendant and gave it to you. Like, come on. That's, like, not, that's too convenient, so. Well, especially because Simon said something about time travel also. I was like, 100%, this is going to be the daughter. And the one thing I wasn't super clear on was, why was it 1,020 years? Like, did, did Simon just really mess up the time, like, the traveling thing? I think so. I'm curious okay. if we'll find out more, like, from the prophet or, like, because he pulled, it was, like, something there were, like, all these strings and he, like, pulled on one and lost the baby in transit. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, if that one was stronger because of some, like, there might be more to the story, but I don't think he intentionally did it. I think he tried to go to wherever he was supposed to go and jumped ahead on accident. Okay. And then I think when he did that, that somehow his magic, because I was like, why didn't he just go back or like, but I don't think he has that ability anymore. I think magic has all changed in his ability because he doesn't have the markings on his back. Yeah. And I think it probably had something to do with the fall of the Blood Queen, right? Yeah, what happened with Riel. Oh my gosh, there's so much I want to (laughs) learn. I know. Well, luckily we have two more books to go. I know. I I do like the characters in Eliana's story. I don't like them as much as the characters in Riel. So we have Harkan, who's like her friend and lover. He falls off the face of the earth quite quickly. Do you think he's still alive? I do. I absolutely do. I hope he is. I liked him. I liked him too. I thought he was a little, I don't know, like he kind of really just like went along with everything Eliana said and didn't stand up for himself that much. So I'm curious to see if he comes back, if he has like more of a... Backbone. (laughs) Yeah, it was just like more, more agency. It sort of felt like the only thing he cared about was his love for her and she didn't even reciprocate it well. So yeah. It's a little bad for him. Um, And then we have Navi, who is a princess of the last free territory, Astabar. And we learned that the Empire is going to evade them, and she's, like, trying to get out to warn her people. I'm not quite sure what her role is right now, though. That's fair. Like, I guess it's an interesting side side plot, but I don't... I'm not, like, getting a ton from her character. I think we, like, needed her as a plot device to get, like, the wolf there and to reveal some information. And I do think it's, like, watching... Eliana start to develop a female friendship has is good character development but I agree I'm not sure like what role she'll play in the bigger story necessarily at this point yeah I almost feel like she's just there to like make Eliana more likable <laughs> which is kind of a bummer but I feel like she could be so much more because you also like see her talking with Remy like I I don't know exactly how it'll play out but 
I could see her being more than that. I don't know. I hope so. Especially if she has, like, influence. Like, if they're in this free country now where she's a princess and if she has the ability to gather an army or, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It is interesting, though. I feel like Riel and her friends, as much as they, like, have had some hardship, are for the most part, like, pretty lucky and blessed people versus I feel like Eliana Mm -hmm. and her friends have all been through, like, so much hardship. And, like, the relationships are so different for the two time periods. Yeah, because they've been through so much more and they've had to struggle and they've had to survive. They haven't been, like, living in a palace being coddled their whole lives. Like, yeah, it's very different. They didn't grow up playing together. (laughs) Right, right. Which totally makes sense given their characters and how, like, they have to make hard choices. It's part of their lives and they've had to make really hard sacrifices and it's not fair. But, yeah, the two women, uh, Riel and Eliana, do just feel very, very different. Which I really like. And it helps that the the worlds are different. They're very different. Their voices are, like, I'm not struggling at all between the two storylines. No. Of, like, where am I now? And it is cool, like, how Remy will, like, share stories from the past that help us understand what Riel... Like, it's cool how the stories still inform each other, but they're also... They could almost be entirely separate. Totally. I think the fact that they are so different really helps this book with the the back and forth chapters um, and with the the characters, just keeping them straight. Because you could almost tell the story chronologically, and I I don't think it would be yeah. as good. Like I like the way it's told, but you could just like have book one be like real up until the prologue scene, and then like jump totally. ahead a thousand years. And but like I feel like that would be so disjointed. Like this is such a cool. I really like the structure. Me too. So then in. Eliana's story, we learn... Well, we meet the wraith, Zara. Oh, yeah. And I liked this. So Zara used to be an angel, but she was stripped of her body for allying with the humans. And she's kind of viewed as a traitor. I thought everyone lost their body when they were in the gate, but she just, like, wasn't given a new one because she was allied with humans. Am I making that up? Ooh, I don't know. I thought know. behind the gate, they no, no one had bodies. But then I think Corian and then his friends, and honestly, even... It's kind of similar to what happened with Ludovin, possessed, I think, the bodies of mm. actual people. Oh, yes, you're right. Well, then what about Zamyaza? Because he's also a wraith, but he is serving the Fidelia faction. Because I I think they don't have enough. I think Corian can't resurrect angels into bodies without some magic, which I think is why he's looking for Eliana and why he needed Riel. And I think even though some of the wraiths have sided with him until they get the magic to put them in bodies, they can't do that right now, maybe? I think so, because... They, uh, Zara said that like Zemyaza is serving the emperor, hoping that when he finds the sun queen, he will resurrect his body. So yeah, I don't know why some angels are given bodies and some aren't. That's a really good question. I thought that maybe it had to do with, you know, their loyalty. Well, I do think they take bodies from humans. So I think that the angels who believe that like that's an abuse of their power or like a wrong thing to do will not take bodies. But I also think they need sun and or blood queen magic to complete the resurrection or whatever. And is that why Simon is trying to protect Eliana because he doesn't want the emperor to use her to resurrect bodies? Or because he truly believes the prophecy that she can save the world and even if he doesn't know exactly what that means. I'm curious to see what the prophet knows okay. because I feel like, especially if Simon is following this guy, I mean, to be fair, he was like five or whatever when he came to this world, so it could just be any adult who he trusted. But you think with all the experience he had in the previous time period and like what he saw and knew and his father, and I'm like, why are you following anybody? Why aren't you just like leading? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think he's in a tough position because he's half angel, half human. And he's obviously been like, tor- like he's gone through, like I just, I want to know more of his backstory. What's happened to him since he arrived there I do too. he's got all these scars he's... he hasn't had a great life but what, what it seems like is that eliana is the sun queen she has the power to destroy the world and that means defeating the angels or repair the world right yeah but doesn't don't you think that means like destroying the angels i think that's what the general population interprets it as especially because they don't even know they are angels they think they're just the empire okay but I'm always skeptical of prophecies and what they actually mean. And part of me is like, maybe True. she actually, knows. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's the opposite of what we think. Well, also, I think like there has to be something more with Razavel because 
the way he is stalking her and trying to get her on his side, like it's it's more than just serving the emperor. Like I think I think what it comes down to is that like Eliana's special, she has these powers and there's two groups who want her, essentially. Like there's Simon's group and then there's Razabelle and the Emperor. Which is probably how Riel feels too, or is about to feel, because it's like, yeah, if you're if you have this power, everyone wants that power for themselves, right? Or like to like have you as an ally yeah. or a tool. <laughs> But is Razavel dead now? Because she like goes back and like cuts Razavel's throat. But I feel like I'm unsure uh, what they can and can't repair. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. I never know who's actually dead or not because everyone keeps coming back from the dead. <laughs> yeah, it's also interesting because Eliana has that power too, right? She mm-hmm. can heal quickly. Yeah. But Riel didn't have that power, or at least not so far in the story. Well, they did say all the magic changed. Yeah. So, so, but then doesn't it seem like Eliana just got elemental magic at the end when she like released all of her when she caused that storm and stuff? I don't know. I'm curious if she still has the. Uh, there's still questions, I guess. Nothing where I'm like this doesn't yeah. make sense, but just things where I'm like I'm intrigued. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel too. Um, because I mean, it's also interesting that like Riel is the Blood Queen and she gave birth to the Sun Queen. Like I did not expect that to be how the two queens came to power like I didn't expect one to birth the other and then Eliana essentially has like also inherited the power of the blood queen so I I thought it would be more straightforward of like blood queens sun queen but now it's like there's a blending of queens and their powers which is like a little bit hard to keep straight it's also interesting because remember when she was born and Riel was saying something like I thought that she would die or that I would kill her I would kill you so I'm yeah. curious if these storylines intersect some other way besides just that scene that we saw. Yeah. Like, is that the only moment that mother and daughter were actually physically together? Or with the ability to time travel and all this magic, I'm curious if there's another way that Riel jumps forward, even forward than where we are, or Eliana goes back. Like, I'm curious if there's another interaction where they're like both grown or some the same age or the age they are now but they somehow communicate or interact or yeah well the author did say that this book used to be three times as long so maybe (laughs) it was all in there at one point and got taken out i mean i'm sure we'll get it in later books yeah she said she was working on it for like 14 years on and off right yeah that's amazing love it but i mean clearly a lot of work went into building this world i can't even imagine how like keeping everything straight in your mind oof that could not have been an easy task yeah it was interesting too i read a little bit about the author and she like wanted to be a writer when she was little but when she like went off to college and stuff wanted to be a musician and that's like what she went to school for and then this idea hit her and that's like when she shifted back to writing and ended up getting um, a degree in english and a graduate degree in library science but i'm curious if we'll see any like musical influence at some point in these stories or if her other books have any of that at all i always love hearing people's backgrounds i've read the cavendish home oh you have for boys and girls yeah i have read that and her other book sawkill girls and the winter spell series are on my to read list but i I haven't gotten to them yet i haven't read anything else by her yet but i mean i would read more by her in a heartbeat i think she's a really great writer Again, long book, but it didn't feel long. I also read this one pretty quickly. And I appreciate that she, her writing is solid, but she doesn't try and be overly writerly, I guess. Like, it's very good writing, but she's not using, like, a bunch of flowery metaphors or, like, you know, some books we've read where it's, like, it almost reads, like, poetry, but it's very ambiguous. Like, there's none of that here, which I really appreciate. It's just, like, solid good writing, which... I love. And it is still pretty plot driven, but I think the characters, even the outside the two main characters, are being developed. And I'm curious to see some of them develop more, but like sometimes I feel like if you're so plot driven, like you don't know anybody, I feel like I know a lot of people. <laughs> I agree. I feel connected to the characters. Like there are so many characters in this book, and I think that was my problem with Ember and the Ashes. There were just so many characters to keep straight, and I didn't really feel connected to any of them. But I feel like really good about the relationships and the characters in this series like I'm really excited to find out what happens to them which is awesome agreed hopefully it keeps up for the next two books I always get nervous when I like the first book that I'm gonna be like disappointed with the rest of the series or something well hopefully that doesn't happen 
Um, did you do any research this week? I did a little bit. I was looking into angels some. Mm. I know we talked about this before, but I think it's so interesting and like, and I think I've shared on the podcast before, I'm Catholic and like in Christian tradition, right? Angels are more of a really, not something that you would want to like go to war as a human race against and lock up in the depth and be like, oh my goodness, an angel is talking to me. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. (laughs) But I was a little bit curious about what some of the parallels are so I was reading this article about do angels know your secret thoughts and of course what a lot of this is you know based off of different theological whatever stuff but so angels in general are considered like they're they're not as knowledgeable as God right so they're not all-knowing like God is Aren't they like God's lieutenants? That's kind of how I like thought of them. Yeah. So they are like, they were created before humans and they're, they're like between God and humans on like the hierarchy of stuff, if that makes sense. And there's also like a hierarchy within angels, which I'm not going to be able to tell you anymore Mm -hmm. specifically, but like there's different species of angels and they have like different rankings. But they do know more than humans do. Yeah, they're a higher order of creation than people, and they innately possess a greater knowledge than man. That was according to Ron Rhodes in his book, Angels Among Us, Separating Fact from Fiction. Guardian angels, some people may have more than one, is an angel that's been assigned to care for you throughout your earthly lifetime. And they can access your mind because they need to communicate with you regularly to do a good job of like guarding you spiritually and helping you grow. But I think you have to invite them still. Oh, that makes me feel better. But like, can you, is it like vampires? Like you can invite them in, but then you can like <laughs> take back your invitation? So at least this article I was reading made it sound like it's more like you pray to your guardian angel to like have them help guide you and then they'll like help guide you. Not like in the book where they okay. just like show up in your mind and like you feel them touch your in- head invaded. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they communicate with each other through telepathy. So hmm. they can transfer thoughts between themselves with their minds which is I think Zara was saying that at one point too she's like oh I forgot you like can't Mm -hmm. hear my thoughts so they don't need to speak to each other and they can read our thoughts if we give them permission yeah this says no angel or spirit guide can get into our minds without our permission but if we allow them to read our minds we can call on them at any time without verbalization so again this is more of a like pray to invite your guardian angel into your life to help you but again they're not the same level of like only God can fully know you even your guardian angel who knows you very very well will not know you as well as God knows you now do you just have one guardian angel or does like one guardian angel can an angel be a guardian of many humans or is it like individualized I think at least in your lifetime your guardian angel is focused on you I am not clear if because they're sort of outside of time too but if like a thousand years ago if your guardian angel would have had a different person I'm not clear on that but also you might have more than one guardian angel or at least some people and I don't know which people have more than one. Oh, you just need a little extra help. It was interesting too. This one article I was reading was like, I'm, I'm going to like ruin the way it was worded, but the takeaway I got was like, they're so much smarter than us. They live outside of time and humor, like the punniest person you know, is like also very smart. So angels actually find humor in like everything humans do or whatever. And I was just like imagining the angels like sitting around being like, mm. oh man, the people today. Laughing hysterically. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like... The, the only angels I really knew a lot about was from Paradise Lost. I wrote my thesis on Paradise Lost. And that was like such a really cool text to read just because it was like one of the first instances where an author was trying to convey how heaven would look and how hell would look and how God would act and how Satan would act and how all the angels would act. And it was the first time that someone tried to like actually visualize that and write about it. And, you know, there weren't really, there wasn't like a guidebook. It wasn't like that had really been done before. He really just had the Bible and like Christian mythology to go off of. So if you look at, at that text that way of like the first depiction of like heaven and hell and giving human characteristics to these beings it was like really fascinating to read from that perspective that is fascinating it's kind of funny that the way angels are depicted in like modern art they are like humans with wings and white robes or they're like cupid babies or i don't know just like mm-hmm. it's it's interesting what images stick why do we accept that yeah yeah i just remember in paradise lost they have this whole description about how angels have sex <laughs> Which 
which is like you wouldn't expect that, but like it's actually kind of a really funny text if you if you read Paradise Lost. But they their angels describe about how like the two angels when they come together they just like blend fully and like that's how they have sex. And I just remember thinking like, wow, Milton, like what were you like? <laughs> thank you for including that, but like what was going through your head? <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, I read that they can't marry. But I guess they can they can blend. And I did see something that said your guardian angel was created to get you into heaven, so you would not share a guardian angel with anyone else. They're not recycled, it said. Okay. And you're not supposed to name your guardian angel. Oh. oh, but angels have such cool names. Yeah, I mean, they might have a name. And I guess if they reveal their name to you, that's different. But if you name them, it's as if you're assuming some kind of authority over them. And we're not given that power. Oh. I can see that being a problem, yeah. Also, a demon could attempt to trick you by giving you a name of your angel that's not your angel's name, so, you know, just be careful. You gotta be careful what voice you listen to. That's the, like, I mean, I've thought about that with other stuff, too. Like, how do you know for sure, like, some people who believe that they're hearing God speak, but what if they're hearing the devil speak? Or what if they're just imagining, like... that's like what Riel's going through right now too because she's like hearing this voice and she's assuming he's there, there to help her and he turns on her. Yeah. To be fair, angels in their world were already a negative thing. So when she finds out True. he's an angel, she's already like, eh, I don't know. On guard. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, what did you research? There's so much more about angels. I like didn't even, I like was overwhelmed by what I saw. So I didn't really share a whole lot, but it, it was interesting that they can talk to you and read your thoughts, but only if you invite them according to the article I was reading and mm. that they do talk to each other telepathically. So at least that part kind of fits with Christian tradition. Yeah, that held true. Um, I went pretty far away from Christian tradition because I researched <laughs> birth control. <laughs> Love it. (laughs) Um, You get everything on this podcast. (laughs) The whole gamut. A thousand years ago. (laughs) Um, And the reason I researched this was because we have that scene where Ludovin, being like the great girlfriend that she is, takes Riel to Simon's father to get contraception so she can have sex with her future husband, which is so messed up. (laughs) I know. That was, I was almost like, is this like a passive aggressive thing? Or like, this is kind of a weird step to go with anyone. Yeah. Like... I understand saying, like, yes, I'm not interested. You have my blessing. Have at it. But to, like, actually help her, like, go that far, I don't know. Or even to be, like, make sure you're safe and careful. But, like, to she basically, like, ambushed her a little bit, too. And was like, come just walk with me. And then they, like, showed up at the <laughs> pharmacist, basically. <laughs> it's such a funny scene. Um, so, yeah, I researched some ancient methods for birth control. And I will caveat this by saying, please do not try any of these at home. Um, this is not meant to be uh, a guide for how to prevent pregnancy. Please talk to your healthcare provider yes. before. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, so the first method that I learned about was in the 16th century BCE, Egyptian and Mesopotamian women used um, acacia, which is a type of tree, and they would mix unripe acacia fruit with honey and ground dates. And then they would uh, soak it in cotton and then insert it, kind of like a tampon. Hmm. And what's kind of interesting is that it was actually pretty effective because I guess acacia gum ferments into lactic acid, which is a natural spermicide. Interesting. I also feel like I just get nervous when people put things places and... Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, because I think they would put it in bef- like before sex and leave it in there during, and then I don't know how they would get it out, but apparently it worked. It's also just interesting to think that this is, I mean, it makes sense, but that for thousands of years there's been a need or a reason to find some kind of birth control or to have some option for... Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, especially when you think about how having a baby impacted women, especially, like, it's such a women's rights issue. Yeah. Well, and also, I think, like, during this time period, a lot of this is, like, ancient history. Like, I feel like there was so much political turmoil and, like, so much warfare happening. You could imagine, like, someone thinking, like, I don't know if I want to bring a child into this. You know, like, there's so much instability. And how hard it is, like, childbirth is was one of the most dangerous things a woman could do. Yeah. And how do you afford the kids? Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. How do you feed them? So, okay, one of the um, most popular methods was a plant called silphium, and it was it's similar to fennel, and the ancient Egyptians, Romans, and Greeks used this a ton for, for lots of different medicinal purposes, but the main one was to prevent 
pregnancy. So women would, they would grind the seeds of the plant up and, and drink it in a form of juice once a month for natural contraceptive purposes. They also would soak it in wool, like soak the plant's juice in wool and insert that as well. Mm. What's interesting is it was so valuable to the ancient Mediterranean trading economy that it was put on their currency, like the sulfium seed was put on the Serranian coin. And, and that's oh, where wow. it was farmed, actually, or and cultivated. It grew near Syrene, which is in present-day North Africa. Does this plant still exist? No. So, so like, the plant was so popular that it became scarce. And so they tried to grow it outside mm. of the region where it grew in Libya, and it, it, wouldn't pro- it wouldn't flourish. It wouldn't grow. And so it became, like, very coveted, very scarce, and but people still were using it so much that it eventually went extinct. Wow. Yeah, it went extinct between the 1st and 2nd centuries CE. But what's really interesting is it was so effective that... People tried to, like much later, people tried to kind of recreate the extract. So they, they found like a relative of the plant and they found that in low doses, it was nearly 100% effective in preventing pregnancy in rats. Huh. So much so that like they think that sylphium was a really, it was one of the main reasons why Rome had such a low birth rate. So like the Roman Empire was like really afflicted by low birth rates so much so, in fact, that like the, the Emperor Augustus, he was setting a tax on people who were unmarried and who didn't have children because they were like so desperate to raise the population. And there's a lot of reasons for the low population. Like I said, it was like a lot of a time of warfare. Child mortality was high. Um, infanticide was still practiced, especially among girl children or girl babies. So, like, there were some other reasons for it, but they think that this plant, like, it was so effective that it contributed. Definitely contributed, yeah. Yeah, so then I also looked at earliest examples of condoms. (laughs) So the Romans used boiled animal bladders to create, like, condom-like sheaths to wear during sex. In China, they were made out of oiled paper or lamb intestines. Some were made out of tortoise shell or thin leather, and they were often like one size fits all, which I don't, I don't know how that worked, but probably not great. Yeah, <laughs> and it wasn't until the 18th century when they started being made out of linen or animal intestines. Um, but yeah, that, none of that sounds comfortable. Tortoise shell? No, nope. hmm. no, nope. I don't think so. Um, Roman women were also told that sperm could be expelled by coughing, jumping, and sneezing after intercourse. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, oh, gotta, <laughs> gotta do my 10 jumping jacks while sneezing. <laughs> uh, and then women in Greece and in the Mediterranean area sometimes used pomegranate shells as cervical caps. Oh. Yeah, so they would, use, they would like, carve out a cap out of pomegranate shells and insert that. They also used sea sponges rinsed in acidic lemon juice. And another one was Queen Anne's lace or wild carrot. So the seeds, they said, could be used as a contraceptive method because they actually block the production of progesterone, which is necessary for pregnancy. Wow. That's like crazy when the science actually lines up with like ancient practice. I know. That's what I think is like so interesting. And um, another popular method was animal dung, like uh, crocodile excrement or elephant feces. Wait, what would they do with it? They would put it inside themselves. Mm, that doesn't seem sanitary. No, but they did say that what it might have done was, I guess, animal excrement is very alkaline, and it could kill the sperm. Hmm. I don't know. That's what they said. And no one was willing to really test the hypothesis out <laughs> in later so, times. Again, so. do not try this at home. <laughs> oh, they used olive oil. Some people used olive oil internally. And that was because they thought that it would slow sperm's mobility, which is kind of interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Some interesting examples of contraception. Wouldn't recommend any of them, but some of them were pretty effective. No, and it's just, it is fascinating. I didn't know that thing about Rome's low population either, so that's kind of crazy to think. I mean, again, multiple factors involved, I'm sure, but... Yeah, they said between um, the year 1 and 500 AD, it was estimated that the population declined uh, within the Roman Empire. It declined from... 32.8 million to 27.5 million. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was my research. It was uh, kind of very tangentially related, but kind of interesting. No, definitely. And it it's also interesting to think about, I feel like at different points in history, that would just be like common practice to know or collect something versus like very much like had to be done secretly or like through a network of people to like the acceptability of using contraceptives, I feel like has also shifted so much in history. Yeah. And I think um, it's interesting how it was so many of these was like designed for women to be taken care of like I only found one example where it was recommended for men to be taking the control of the situation the action Mm -hmm. yeah there was like one doctor who recommended men crush juniper berries and put them on their nether regions (laughs) Um, but yeah most of it was like yeah the woman is the one having to experiment dealing with the consequences and and dealing with the consequences yeah and and trying to find something that works so cool well should we talk about the next book let's do it i'm excited history is it (laughs) jinx i don't remember i don't remember either i feel like it might be my turn because i don't think i had the book last time when we read yeah i think you're right okay so why don't you tell us a little bit about the next book which is called king's bane okay i'm so excited Two queens, separated by centuries, must fight for their crowns as a rising evil threatens everything they love. Riel Darden has been anointed Sun Queen, but her trials are far from over. The gate, keeping the angels at bay, is falling. To repair it, Riel must collect the seven hidden castings of the saints. Meanwhile, to help her prince and love, Audric, protect Caldaria, Riel must spy on the angel Corian but his promises of freedom and power may prove too tempting to resist. So she's on like another seven quest thing. Centuries later, Eliana Farakora grapples with her new reality. She is the Sun Queen, humanity's Mm -hmm. long-awaited savior. But fear of corruption, fear of becoming another Riel, keeps Eliana's power dangerous and unpredictable. With new allies in her corner, she races against time to save her dying friend, Navi. Oh, Navi's dying? Maybe from that experiment? (laughs) Most importantly, Eliana must decide how to wear a crown she never wanted by either embracing her mother's power or rejecting it forever. Separated by a thousand years, connected by secrets and lies, Riel and Eliana's fight continues amid deadly plots and unthinkable betrayals that will test their strength and their hearts. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry I'm laughing, but the first review on Goodreads just says... This book somehow deserves the electric chair and five stars at the same time. Oh, man. We'll have to remember that when we finish this book and see if we agree. Yeah, apparently it ends on a cliffhanger. Thankfully, we follow my rule and we know we can read the third book immediately after because they're all out now. This is why we have that rule. Because I cannot handle cliffhangers. All right, should we... uh, Oh, do you have a joke? Or do I have a joke? Do you have a joke? I think it's mine. Okay, I think it is too, and I don't have one, so if you have one, let's hear it. I don't have an angel joke, but someone did give me a dad joke calendar for this year, so let's see what we've got going on here. Knock, knock. Who's there? Figs. Figs who? Figs the doorbell. It's broken. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, why is the barn so noisy? I don't know. Because the cows have horns. <laughs> oh god, these are so stupid. <laughs> I wonder if songbirds think hummingbirds just forgot the words. <laughs> okay, that one's a good one. <laughs> that was. I need to remember that one. That was amazing. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll edit the others out and just keep that one. That was good. <laughs> Okay, if, you, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at mnktalkya. And if your guardian angel has spoken to you, Ooh. please share your story with yes. us. And, and please don't try any of those contraceptive methods, please. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to hear any stories about those. <laughs> Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card.
M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.